Now, there really isn't anything radically wrong with being sick or with dying. Who said you're supposed to survive? Who gave you the idea that it's a gas to go on and on and on? And we can't say that it's a good thing for everything to go on living from the very simple demonstration that if we enable everybody to go on living, we overcrowd ourselves. So therefore, uh, one person who dies in a way is honorable because he's making room for others. We can also look further into it and see that if our death could be indefinitely postponed, we would not actually go on postponing it indefinitely. Because after a certain point, we would realize that that isn't the way in which we wanted to survive. Why else would we have children? Because children arrange for us to survive in another way. By, as it were, passing on a torch so that you don't have to carry it all the time. There comes a point where you can give it up and say, now you work. It's a far more amusing arrangement for nature to continue the process of life through different individuals than it is always with the same individual. Because as each new individual approaches life, life is renewed. And one remembers how fascinating the most ordinary everyday things are to a child. Because they see them all as marvelous, because they see them all in a way that is not related to survival and profit. And when we get to thinking of everything in terms of survival and profit value, as we do, then the shapes of scratches on the floor cease to have magic. And most things, in fact, cease to have magic. So therefore, in the course of nature, once we have ceased to see magic in the world anymore, we are no longer fulfilling nature's game of being aware of itself. There's no point in it anymore. And so we die. And so something else comes to birth, which gets an entirely new view. It is not, therefore, natural for us to wish to prolong life indefinitely. But we live in a culture where it has been rubbed into us in every conceivable way that to die is a terrible thing. And that is a tremendous disease from which our culture in particular suffers. Yeah. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks. It's March the 10th, 2020. And welcome to the show. This is KEKU 88.5 FM streaming on KEKU.org. 
and on Facebook Live at KEKU 88.5 FM. We are Maui's community-supported, listener-sponsored radio station. And it's uh, Coronavirus Tuesday. And I'm going to do a little bit different, and I've got my in-studio guest in studio. And so I think I'll switch it around. Usually I have the guest come in at the second half of the show, but Keith McCrary is here. I've seen him around for years. Um, he's an elfin kind of guy uh, in some ways, and I always thought he must be an interesting, uh, cool old dude. And so I ran into him one day, and I said, uh, are you an old person? And he smiled and said yes, and I asked him if he'd come on the radio show. And, um, of course, I'd love to, I'd love to sit in the coffee store sometimes and if I see somebody that's obviously o- over 80 and I, I tap them on the shoulder and say, excuse me, are you an old person? And they're often startled out of their um, whatever place they're in and look around to see who would even ask the question. And so I quickly explain I'm a minister and uh, I run a nonprofit organization and I have a radio show in the theme of uh, conscious aging, dying and death and assorted related um, topics, um, how how we treat dying and death in this culture, and how that's changing, and um, how we how we how we look at grief and work with grief, and and how we grieve, and how so many of us are grieving, and not only uh, the loss of somebody who who has died close to us, but uh, certainly so many of us are grieving what's happening in the world, and what's happening in this country, what's happening today, on so many levels where breakdown and dying is happening. I could I could probably spend the rest of the show just talking about those pieces. And, but my role here isn't to make you uh, depressed or despair, because most people are already depressed and despair, uh, more so to help shake you out of depression and despair, because those are pretty disempowering, energy-sucking, um, experiences and I want to be empowered in the time that I have left and I want to do my best to empower and support you to come out of the cultural sleepwalk and and stand up for what's true you know what they're saying now truth to power so I have Keith McCrary here and I'll, I'll say what I wrote about him Keith has been a Waldorf educator he has taught at four different elementary Waldorf schools including 10 years at the Haleakala Waldorf School here on Maui. He also founded the Adult Waldorf and Education Program, a part-time program for teacher training. He continues to teach ancient Greek and Latin part-time to 5th and 6th graders. Who doesn't need more? I mean, who who doesn't need more Latin in their life? Um Waldorf Publications, oh, Waldorf Publications published a book that uh, Keith McCrary wrote and illustrated called The Alpha Beta Book, an introduction to ancient Greek, ancient Greek, what does it say? Ancient Greek. Join our conversation. Oh, call the number here if you want to ask Keith a question um, or me, or you've got something on your heart that uh, you don't know where to take it. Uh, sometimes people just need a place to express what's on their heart and uh, just to give it some space to move because it wants to move. Uh, but oftentimes there's nowhere to take it. People don't want to hear about it. And uh, don't be bringing me down kind of thing. 
Of course, we're like I said, we're already down. But anyways, uh, welcome to the show, Keith McCrary. A delight to have you with us. Thank you for allowing me to take part in this conversation. And I was um, flattered that uh, you approached me. And if I had <clears throat> had a little more time, I might have mentioned that there are three stages of old age. There's creak when your bones begin to creak. And there's crack when your voice begins to crack. And then there's croak. And those three phases <laughs> are... Uh, creak, crack, and croak? Yes, the three principal <laughs> parts of old age. <laughs> However, I would have... I never heard that, Keith. Yeah, it's original. Sort of. <laughs> Or who knows what's original? That would make a good book, though. Creek, crack, and croak. <laughs> All right, maybe we can do that together. That's why I tell people they need to be flexible, because otherwise you turn into a stiff. Hey, that's cool. Very cool. Well, the the obvious thing is that um, for me, at any rate, and for many people, is that croak is not the end. Fortunately, um, I was looking at a, something that Eckhart Tolle um, wrote about few years ago in a little book he calls Stillness Speaks. And he says, um, death is not the opposite of life. Life has no opposite. The opposite of death is birth. Life is eternal, or paraphrased slightly. Uh, life and death are not opposites. Birth and death are opposites. Life goes on. Well said. Well said. We'll come back to you. I want to uh, talk about a few things. Uh, our Ipuka project, and many of you who have been listening know about our uh, plans to develop a beautiful park and natural burial ground that includes a pet cemetery, a flower farm, a community center with walking trails and picnic areas, uh, a learning center for community events and classes, and a beautiful ritual hall, and a beautiful, beautiful organic green natural burial ground in the shape of the flower of life uh, with a labyrinth in the center of the burial ground. Um, those are some of the features. And so that story actually made it into the big Honolulu Star Advertiser uh, on in the Maui section on Sunday and in the statewide newspaper on Monday. So it's good to get um, get it out there so more people hear about it and know about it. And hopefully more people want to pony up and write big checks because that's where we are right now. So if you want to know more about that project, and I hope you do, the website uh, to read all about it and see the beautiful drone video of the land is www.ipuka.org. I hope you go look at it and write me. I'd love you to comment about it and... Uh, share uh, share your place in that story. I want to read an article uh, that was sent to me recently um, entitled, I Just Want to Leave This World. And that, that'll be a good starting place for uh, Keith and I maybe to have a conversation and comment on what this story is about. But I'll read it to you now. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks. This is an article by a man named John Pavlovitz. I just want to leave this world. Some days I just want to leave this world. Living here much longer simply feels like an emotional impossibility lately. The cruelty is too prevalent, the atrocities too pervasive. 
the fractures beyond repair. It is an exercise in diminishing returns each morning, expending the necessary energy required to protect the fragile embers of hope still remaining within me, with so much threatening to snuff it out. It's difficult to breathe in this atmosphere as if my chest can't fully expand and I feel myself slowly suffocating beneath the weight of how not right it all is and how few people seem to notice. Every day I do my best to gather my strength, redouble my resolve and step out into the brokenness and enmity, bleeding heart affixed to my sleeve but a disorienting spiritual nausea soon grips me as I try and navigate the now wildly shifting bedrock of what I once believed and the people I thought I knew and the home I imagined I had. No ground feels solid anymore. To be, deeply, to be a deeply feeling person in a time when empathy has become middle index partisan slur doesn't seem sustainable and neither does staying and today I just want to leave this world. I want to leave its coldness forever in my rear view to run into anything else because even the terrifying what could be beyond this place seems more inviting right now than the terrible what is. Some days I want to step swiftly from here into hereafter because here is too painful to endure. But that's just the sadness talking. Leaving isn't really an option because this is still my home, because I am still tethered here to people I love fiercely, because there is still so much unfinished music inside me, because whatever force of life still resides here beating defiantly in the center of my chest isn't fully extinguished yet and because I refuse to depart until it is. And so today I just want to leave this world. I want to leave it more compassionate than I found it. I want people here who are pressed up hard against desperation to encounter rest in me, for them to feel less alone in the grief and the disbelief they carry on their rubber raw shoulders and to be able to exhale again. I want to leave this world more than, ju than more just than when I arrived. At the end of my time I want to know that while I was here I spent every bit of the unearned currency of my privilege to make room at the table for the excluded and uninvited and unloved, to create spaces of refuge where people experience true belonging in my presence, even a few places else. I want to leave this world lighter than it was when I got here. I want to be the, the, a source of the kinds of fits of laughter and kind acts and joyful exchanges that are medicinal to the souls of people afflicted by the heaviness of loss, disappointment, failure, and rejection to bring lift in the face of so much deflation. Yes, I want to leave this world safer and kinder and funnier and more decent 
which means staying as long as I can and filling up my days with as much that affirms life as I can manage until my last day arrives. It means speaking words of truth and of love even when silence would be the less turbulent path. Engaging the cruelty, confronting the atrocities, and placing myself into the fractures so that hopefully, even in ways I can't see or measure in the moment, some healing might come. I figure that's the best use of the time and the place and the story I'm standing in right now. One day I'm going to leave this world for good, but today I'm going to leave it better. That's John Pavlovitz called I Just Want to Leave This World, and, and uh, johnpavlovitz.com is where you can find that story. Well, once again, having read it um, one, a number of times now, I, I almost can't get through the whole story. And um, why don't you say something about um, responding to that, Mr. Keith McCrary? Wow. That's a word that I've heard recently uh, by uh, you as a statement of truth uh, as well as a statement of recognizing that what is doesn't have to be the way it will be. And the way it is, is important. And I was coming across that kind of radical uh, honesty on occasion that enables me uh, and others to take what is and make it better, as he closes with, beautifully put. Yeah, so so many people, so many of us are feeling those feelings, uh, but aren't aren't maybe as eloquent as the way that that mm. came across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I have this yeah. image uh, that I'm holding on to uh, of of this knight. I'm this knight leaving the castle mm -hmm. on the the most amazing, beautiful horse of of all the horses I own. Mm -hmm. And I'm marching out in my full knight's armor mm -hmm. uh, with every uh, tool I have to slay the dragon. Uh -huh. Knowing that hundreds of knights have marched out before me that have never been heard from again. Mm -hmm. And I can't help, I have no other choice but to march out to slay the dragon. Mm -hmm. And that seems to give me um, sometimes um, a little more strength and courage to show up for uh, what we're what we're being asked to witness and participate in. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of the story of Parsifal, uh, who came across a, a particular castle that he, uh, in a way, stumbled into, and then there was the. The individual of Anfortas, who was presented to him, and he didn't quite pick up on what was happening, and he lived in, you know, one night of kind of um, fantasy of how wonderful it was and the beautiful clothes that he was given to wear, and then the next morning, everything was gone, and there was no one there except one person when he rode out 
called him a goose. You goose. And it took many years for him to circle back around to that place where, finally, he met Anfortas again, who was wounded in a very serious way. And he finally asked the question, what ails thee? Which is a compassionate question, which he should have asked the first mm -hmm. time around. But sometimes the, the way stories go, it builds the tension uh, to the crisis mm -hmm. situation. And then things are different from that stage on. Mm -hmm. And he experiences the grail as a result of that mm -hmm. compassionate question. Yeah, beautiful. That's a great comparison. I, I heard that story slightly differently when I read it. and mm -hmm. Because when he went, I thought it was the king who was very sick, even yeah. though everybody was very dressed up. Mm -hmm. And what Parcival noticed was nobody mm -hmm. was acting as if the king was sick, and nobody would ask him what, what, what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so Parcival himself didn't ask the king. Mm -hmm. And then it leads into the story you told that, uh, mm -hmm. and of course it speaks to how many of us are refusing to acknowledge mm -hmm. what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And and we come back again to this topic that you and I explored earlier about grief, that if we're not mm -hmm. willing to honor the grief, it's as if we're not willing to ask the king, mm -hmm. what's, you know, what, what ails thee? Because um, the planet is sick uh, and the culture is sick, mm -hmm. and and too many of us want to continue on as if everything's going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. Unlikely at this point, mm -hmm. uh, especially given this uh, coronavirus scare, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, there's no toilet paper in the store, or hand sanitizer, or now <clears throat> today I saw people loading up on food, imagining that there may be a food shortage, and there very well may, may be. Um, I think it's the latest reminder that we're going to die and we don't know when. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with that information, if anything? And mm -hmm. um, and maybe it changes us when we... It seems to change people, and uh, um, quite often it uh, changes people in the way of worry, anxiety, mm -hmm. and stress, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which are very debilitating. In fact, I, I'll read something. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll speak a little bit, and I might read something about... Uh, there's a great article about the, what, what those things actually are, worry, stress, and anxiety. But um, let's, let's explore about this guy, Keith McCreary, who um, you, you've done amazing, uh, amazing things in your life, in my view. And uh, even being a pastor in a church in uh, Berkeley or San Francisco in the late 60s itself uh, must have been a very powerful time for you. It was a special time for sure. I mentioned to Keith earlier when he, when he said high mass, he was like, well, that could have taken on and meant a completely different thing than we might imagine high mass, given that it was the late 60s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. And it was a special time for a group of young people who were able to live in the uh, vacated Sunday school rooms that were not used anymore at the First Methodist Church in San Francisco. And as such, it it took, a, um, as it does with many communes, it took a turn where self-absorption began to uh, reign. And as someone said, there are two kinds of people. There are people who are self-absorbed, 
and then there are people who know they're self-absorbed. <laughs> and that little, little moment when you recognize your own self-absorption. I don't know if I like that statement. <laughs> of course not. In, the, in that moment when you recognize your self-absorption, there is a moment of humility. What I, I'd have to say, though, yeah. if I'm going to acknowledge myself as self-absorbed, uh, then and and I that only is true for me if I if I uh, communicate my sense of self. In in fact, I just printed out something today that I'm going to use as a teaching tool mm -hmm. in terms of concentric circles. And if the self is the individuated self. Uh, no, that's not the self-absorbed self that I am, because mm. that may be what the phrase in, uh, implies. Mm. And my sense of self uh, is includes my family and my community, and ideally, uh, at least some of the time, it actually does include the whole web of life mm -hmm. as self, mm. and the mystery and wonder of it all as self. Mm. So in that sense, sure, I'll, I'll be self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. um, then it makes sense to me. Yes, right. Well, the... The honesty or the humility. In fact, uh, someone um, recently suggested that there should be a whole new uh, line of T's, you know, uh, T-E-A-S, uh -huh. in, in which uh, humility would be one of the very first things to, to mm -hmm. sip. Mm -hmm. And uh, then someone suggested, yeah, that would uh, bring some levity. And, uh, you know, gravity is perhaps a little overrated and needs to be balanced uh, with levity. And I appreciated uh -huh. something of what you alluded to earlier in terms of lightness and a, a kind of uh, different take on things, a, a different mm -hmm. view that allows one to be radically clear and honest and recognizing mm -hmm. when it is that we are totally self-absorbed we all ought to be drinking a lot of that levity right now right. because mm. without levity we really are lost yeah that's for sure that's for sure so uh, in your 84 years mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly given you let's say a wider perspective of at least a sense of time mm. and and a sense of perspective in terms of what's happening and what's happened Mm -hmm. Is that something you could speak to in terms of, I mean, sometimes, the, I mean, to me, that's an aspect of wisdom. Well, it's, um, it's challenging to, to make sense out of some of the things that are going on in our, in our world today. I think in particular, uh, what's heaviest on my heart are around 900,000 people from Syria who are jammed up against a, a wall in against Turkey, you know, Turkey who have accepted many Syrians before. And the, the, the darkness of that is something else. Mm -hmm. And I would just use darkness as a, as a metaphor, in a sense, that alludes to the fact that there is also light, and that light and levity are where you don't take yourself so seriously. You can laugh at yourself, you know, for your foibles. And in that um, scenario, if you will, I would say that, that wisdom has to do uh, with something that is primarily coming from the Greek uh, know thyself kind of philosophical arrangement of things. 
and wisdom is you know a whole group of of uh, literature in the Old Testament. You know, Job is part of it, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and Proverbs. And the the wisdom tradition certainly lives there in Judaism, uh, and it it is in balance in some respects with other images that come out of the Old Testament that are a bit darker. In the New Testament, uh, there is. Uh, I like to think of Jesus as the personification of of love, love mm-hmm. personified, mm-hmm. and in action, uh, in action, right? Yes, right. Very real with people. Mm-hmm. Very honest and and radically uh, open-hearted as, at mm-hmm. the same time, mm-hmm. honest and and yet also caring, um, deeply caring. And that, I would suggest, has to do with wisdom that gets you out of being Mm self-absorbed. When you're aware of other people's needs, something else can come in and you can respond out of concern. Sometimes I define a depression as this inward spiral that that continues to go further and further inward to where all, all all you know and all you experience is your own pain and yourself, mm-hmm. and that you can't think outside of your own pain and yourself. And it's easy to imagine that that, that would cause depression. And mm-hmm. and uh, along with depression, there's this sense, at least in this culture, such a sense of, it's here for me. Mm-hmm. That sense of entitlement, that it's here for me, and it's my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, an element of, of Despair, which is a lack of hope, uh, mm-hmm. is a you know an important thing to to recognize, and yet how to get out of it is to care about somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. the healing force, I would suggest, and it does enable one to think wider than oneself. So. Would you, is that, in a nutshell, your strategy for how we're going to get out of this mess? Indeed. Yeah. And it goes on one um, by one. It comes in packages sometimes, uh, even legislative packages on occasion. I was born in an interesting year, 1935, um, 84 years ago, going on 85, and it was the year that Social Security came in. And there was a caring that was being expressed by people around Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Uh, Frances Perkins, I believe, is the lady who was the Secretary of the Treasury uh, or was in a cabinet position, for sure, who was instrumental in getting Social Security there in a place where the elderly are not so destitute, apt to be so destitute, mm-hmm. which was very serious uh, phenomenon in the 30s in the Great Depression. It's amazing, really, that that was, in a sense, a revolutionary concept at the time. Social Security, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. taking care of old people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been very helpful to my wife and me, for sure. And and to millions, millions of people, mm-hmm. even even old me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
let's talk about um, how about this? Uh, you're a student and a teacher in the Rudolf Steiner work. Mm-hmm. What, what what do you think? What's what? I mean, you hear this question: What would Jesus do today? Mm-hmm. Um, we can only imagine that uh, Jesus would make some changes in terms of um, uh, Christianity itself. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Rudolf Steiner? Do you ever imagine? Because you know, oftentimes, and maybe you, I'm sure you've not. Maybe I'm sure you've experienced this that we've got to do it this way because this is how Rudolf Steiner laid it out. Mm-hmm. And then there's the group that's well, what would Rudolf Steiner say about what's happening today and how would his teachings change? Just like that's true around so many different other, uh, whether it's the Hawaiians or whether it's the Christians or whether it's the Native Americans, you see those things show up all the time. We've got to stick to this tradition. Mm-hmm. This is the way it's always been done. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. But does it need to change? How mm-hmm. would it be different? And so, and I'm sure you've considered that yourself. For sure. And part of what has evolved uh, in the Waldorf school movement is what we call public Waldorf schools or charter schools. And there are about 50 in the United States now. And it is, um, it has its issues uh, because it's a state organization. You can't uh, use the word G-O-D, but you can use symbolic words. You can talk about the sun. The sun with loving light makes bright for me each day as a phrase that many school children will say every morning and but <clears throat> one can take that in a uh, a secular fashion and keep it in the in that mood that the the amazing being of the sun that keeps our earth alive uh, is some uh, an entity that has such power it uh, warms the heart in fact some would connect it with the heart uh, and so you have uh, images and pictures that are expanding um, to the point of making a difference in, in uh, structure. And by that, I'm referring to the, the Waldorf School Movement as such, as a, as a private school. It's wonderful. Uh, I've been involved in it for over 40 years. And at the same time, I asked one of the sages of our movement, a student and a friend of Rudolf Steiner himself, you know, what would he uh, say was the the life uh, existence of, say, the Waldorf School Movement? And he said, oh, about 80 years. And this was at a point when it was about 60 years old. In the late 1900s, in 1994 in particular, One very courageous couple uh, were trained as Waldorf teachers, uh, began the first Waldorf Charter School in California. And there's an extension there to open it to a much wider population, not just the affluent, but for people who are, in fact, uh, able to enroll because it's a public school. So that shift and the, the answer, to, to be more complete, was that the man said, it can go on if there's a transformation of it. And this is my hope, is that in the public Waldorf school movement, there will be, a re, there is already a renewal of an energy that's, that's uh, actually helping the 
ordinary or the usual private schools as well. Beautiful. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Treks. Uh, today I'm actually speaking with an old person, uh, mm -hmm. Keith McCreary. Uh, I'm going to play something just to segue, give us a moment to consider all that, and then we'll carry on in this conversation. Regards a seven-year-old. Dear seven-year-old, no matter what anyone says, stay weird. Signed, an eight-year-old. Dear eight-year-old, find out your babysitter's weakness, then use it against them. Signed, a nine-year-old. Dear nine-year-olds, don't get involved with the popular kids. They're narcissistic capitalists that know nothing about politics. Signed, a 12-year-old. Dear 12-year-old, ask her to dance. Just trust me on this one. Signed, a 16-year-old. Dear 16-year-old, don't let your mom throw away your Legos. Signed, an 18-year-old. Dear 18-year-old, go easy on the makeup. You're not as ugly as you think. Love, a 19-year-old. Dear 19-year-old, just because it's an all-you-can-eat buffet does not mean you need to eat all you can. Your parents have better interest rates than your credit card. If he says he has a weekend home in the suburbs, he's married. That rust protection undercoating, it's actually a great deal. Whatever you do, never order the salad from a truck stop. Back up your hard drive, now. I mean, who even does that? Getting laid off can be a blessing in disguise. Being a starving artist only works if you actually make art. Always be kind to your family. You'll need each other when things get tough. Stop panicking. Being a single mom is an incredible thing. I was 22. I had this little kid. I named him Vladimir. He's 14 now. He makes me proud. So, <laughs> Dear 36-year-old, stop caring so much about what other people think. They're not thinking about you at all. Signed, a 47-year-old. Dear 47-year-old, a midlife crisis does not look good on you. Signed, a 48-year-old. Dear 48-year-old, always tell the truth, except when it comes to your online dating profile. Dear 51-year-old, one cat is enough cats. Signed, a 53-year-old. Dear 53-year-old, it's never too late to try something new. I've decided to take my husband's Corvette and go to racing school. If Paul Newman could do it, why can't I? Dear 72-year-old, spend all your money, otherwise, your kids are going to do it for you. Sincerely, an 85-year-old. Dear 85-year-old, indulge your sweet tooth. You'll need that too soon anyway. My late wife made the best apple pie that you could ever find. When she cut the pieces, she would cut small ones, and when she came to me, she would cut a big one. Dear 88-year-old, cultivate younger friends. Otherwise, yours will all die off. Sincerely, 91 years old. Dear 91 year old, don't listen to other people's advice. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. Sign a 93 year old. Just do your own thing. That's the way I say it. 
popular kids, are, they're so shallow. They like hashtags and pop culture. And it's like, I don't care. It's, that's never going to be relevant in the future. If your babysitter hates feet, do a handstand and then put your feet right in their face. Have you ever done that before? No, but I'm willing to. Dear 70-year-old, stay weird. Signed, a 72-year-old. I think that went good. I'm back. I'm Bodie B. I'm here with Keith McCrary. Uh, you wrote something beautiful I read earlier about uh, what you called good grief. Right. And uh, it, it flies in the face of what most people think about grief, if they think about it at all. And uh, it looks to me like most people don't want to grieve. And uh, I think there's even the, the cultural uh, mode or default is to, aren't you over that yet? Hmm. Um, so I'd like to explore with uh, that with you. I'm, as an 84-year-old who's uh, done some interesting work in your life, uh, no doubt you've had your heart broken at least once. Absolutely. And you certainly not only uh, grieved and maybe are grieving, but you've been around as a pastor, uh, minister. Certainly you've counseled with people who are grieving. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your take on the whole thing? Uh, we can explore this a uh, piece you've written, but uh, maybe you could just start us off on uh, what's in the moment about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I alluded to um, Charlie Brown in the first paragraph of that, who was uh, apt, uh, quite common, commonly saying just that, good grief. And it didn't mean what we were talking about, uh, but grief... Uh, I would just say that I had the, the privilege of spending an hour and a half with Charles Schultz on one occasion talking about cartooning, as I am a cartoonist as well. And uh, we had a, a great conversation uh, back and forth about various things, including, including a book that was published called The Gospel According to Peanuts. And uh, uh, without his permission, somebody uh, took off on it. But he was not complaining and not about to sue anybody for uh, doing that. Mm -hmm. He was a very gentle soul, had his own issues, but nonetheless a, a very fine individual. And Charlie Brown himself certainly um, has his struggles with the rejection of the little red-haired girl who was um, actually a personality in Charles Schultz's life, mm. uh, who... Uh, rejected him as an adult and thought that his cartoons would never go anywhere. I imagine she regretted that a few times after that. Nonetheless, grief is a, a time usually associated with sadness, and sadness is one polarity that uh, nicely enough rhymes with gladness, and that's the other pole. Let's and, not leave out madness. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, the, the, the gladness part of it can, you know, certainly work with uh, or come into being out of sadness. But it's, 
not to be denied that uh, there are times for grief, that there are times where that's utterly appropriate, that one is feeling bereft, one is feeling at a loss, one is feeling perhaps even shocked at at the death of another uh, human being that we love. And yet, there is this element with grief that to deny it is foolish. To deny it is not to live in the truth of the moment. And to take it into yourself and then with that kind of radical honesty feel that there is something more and then what can happen is there can be a a recognition of what is that is very fulfilling in one's life. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, just putting uh, having the ability to put uh, on a pair of pants one leg at a time and not fall over. Before Uh, you put your shoes on. Yeah, that too. (laughs) That's wise. (laughs) And there's an element there of uh, of gratitude that's ex- especially important. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is in your physical body, which may be in some difficulty, some decline. Uh, I can't recall, for example, whether I have a memory issue or not. And in that uh, context... <laughs> that helps. Yes, right. To be able to chuckle at the fact that mm-hmm. the memory isn't quite the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. Or another one of my lines is... I used to really be bad with names, and now I'm worse. So you have just that, but Mm -hmm. the recognition of that frailty and that, um, Mm -hmm. as it were, losing something can bring a sadness and a grief at the same Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. to recognize what you have. The fact that my toes are still able to function well Mm -hmm. uh, and keep me from Mm -hmm. falling over uh, once or twice, maybe not, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, Mm -hmm. there's something about even some very banal sort of of functions of the body that are continuing to go on without our even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. What an amazing phenomenon. Mm -hmm. What an amazing thing it is to be able to speak uh, to have the voice, even though it's different than it used to be, mm-hmm. to have the voice and the words that come somehow almost magically off the tongue and say something of value and importance mm-hmm. and of caring to another person. That can overcome grief. That's one way of getting beyond grief without denying it. Yeah, how, how many of those simple, simple things that we do, we don't even think about and take take so for granted that our that our toes work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that our toes work because many people don't have toes that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. The other thing that that helps me a great deal is going out in the uh, in the night time or the early morning time and checking out what's happening out in the night sky, to see the stars, to see the planets, to recognize that we are, you know, on this amazing 
blue-green planet, you know, following a golden star, circling this golden star, traveling at something like 67,000 miles an hour while spinning on the axis. Sometimes I have to lay down and hold on. Yeah, for sure. You can lose, lose your balance that way. But mostly it's about wonder, and it's about awe that is exceptional with the night sky and the recognition that we are here in this part of a galaxy among billions of other galaxies which we didn't even know a hundred years ago. Mm. And so the expansion of, of consciousness is uh, one of the great hopes of for me and uh, people I know that recognizes that this is not a dead end. There is no dead end. Life goes on. And there is an evolution of awareness that's happening in our time that is more than physical. Well said. Clearly, I'm in the presence of an elder, and that gives me hope. Mm. And, uh, but how do you get to be an elder? I mean, I'm guessing by now, uh, maybe, you, uh, maybe that's something you sense about your own being, that somehow you've turned into a real elder. Uh, but not everybody automatically gets old and turns into an elder. Mm. Uh, I wish it was automatic, but clearly it's not. And so then there's the elderly, and the elderly is a different category mm. than people who are true elders. Mm. So how did you do that? How did you pull that off? And, and I would ask mm. you that, and then I'll ask you another question about it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'll answer it with a little whimsy. It's from drinking elderberry tea that I became an elder because the elder berries uh, have their effect and uh, not quite into elderberry wine, that's another story. Uh, that tends to dull the mind, uh, for me it does. Is that true, you drink elderberry tea? Yeah. And uh, Because it, uh, you knew elderberry tea would help turn you into <clears throat> an elder? <laughs> not really, I mean, I'm, I'm being whimsical at that point. Uh, my, uh, I, I do drink tea, I drink coffee. And I, humility. Yeah, humility is my favorite. <laughs> yes, and, in fact, along with some levity. And I'm not a, against gravity either. There needs to be a balance, for sure. And I guess that's the, the one way of answering your question is the kind of balance and recognition of, of one, what one has lost and giving it, you know, a blessing and letting it go, and then holding on with appreciation and gratitude to what is within oneself still. Yeah, go on, but tell us some more qualities that you um, imagine make an elder differently from the elderly. Mm-hmm. Well, the elderly oftentimes becomes a bit bitter uh, and disappointed uh, and despairing. And the opposite of those uh, have to do with, as I mentioned earlier, hope. And there is a, uh, something about bitterness that uh, turns people off and turns one off, oneself off. And so, uh, to put it uh, another way, I use mantras, you know, to remind me of, mm-hmm. you know, what's what. And uh, sometimes there are... Uh, have religious characters, uh, characterizations like not I but Christ be in me, mm-hmm. not I but love be in me, not I but patience and kindness be in me. 
and meditation as such helps to clarify, you know, who I am, remind me that really spirit precedes matter. Matter is going to go. It's going to change its form, but spirit endures. Sometimes I, I do a little uh, limnoscate, or better put, a more common word, is the infinity symbol, and, and I do this dance uh, with the infinity symbol, sometimes on a dance floor, and moving it in different directions, reminding myself that I am an ongoing being. I am one who has a spirit that will survive this physical plane, and thank God for the physical plane, mm -hmm. but thank God for the spiritual and the soul elements, the feeling realm, as well as the thinking realm, uh, that is enabling to make sense of who I am and who I'm with. Beautiful, well articulated. Uh, so somewhere around 50 to 60 years ago, you must have had some some shift in your consciousness that you would enter, enter seminary and become a priest, or not a priest, but a pastor and a minister. Mm -hmm. um, did you have did you have some kind of experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, on one occasion I was talking with a dear friend. When you were how old? Twenty-two. So it was about sixty plus years ago, uh -huh. and uh, I was talking with a a friend after having a long journey after college and uh, um, hitchhiking across the South and drawing caricatures of college students and ending up in Mexico and then coming uh, because I could or I'd made enough money and discovered I could make a living being an artist. Wait, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you because we're at mm. the top of the hour. They're going to cut us off. Oh. So if I just cut us off and let the underwriters have a few words, okay. we'll come back and pick that up again. All right. Uh, I'm Bodie B. Uh, this is Death Tracks. Uh, let's play something. Oh, let's play something that talks about me. Because it is about me. <laughs> mm -hmm. 